Take out your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 18 to 25. Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. Hear the word of the true and living God. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. As far as the reading of God's holy and inspired words, you may be seated. Let's pray together as we approach the text. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to continue to learn what you desire for us as your children. Lord, we pray now as we consider some of what you say about womanhood that you would grant us light to see your word for what it is and the hearts to live it out. Lord, help me to be clear and concise. May it be scripture that shines forth this morning to the edification of your people and to the honor of your holy name. In Christ we pray, amen. So if you were here the last Lord's Day, you heard my attempt to biblically define, women, sorry, to biblically define men in 45 minutes or less. Today we're going to finish up our two-part mini-series on gender with a message I've entitled, Women of Grace. Women of Grace, partly because it's directed towards the Women of Grace Covenant Church, but also because I want us to remember that as believers, as children in the family of God, we are all under grace. In my attempt to edify, encourage, and exhort the women among us, I want us all to remember we are not under condemnation. My goal today is not to play on emotions or insecurities. We are secure in Christ. This is not a self-improvement program in an attempt to earn right standing before God. In Christ, we have already received God's favor. And so as redeemed people, we want to respond with humility, with gratefulness, with joy for the grace upon grace that we have already received. One other thing I want to say by way of introduction is that Almost without exception, when scripture speaks about women, it assumes they either are or will be or have been married. Much of what I say today will strongly encourage and assume marriage, which scripture also does. In most cases, when we read the word translated into English in our Bibles as woman or wife, the Greek or the Hebrew word is one that is interchangeable. For example, when we read about Eve, she is said to be Adam's woman, but she was also his wife. The same goes for Abraham and Sarah, Moses and Zipporah, and so on. When we get to the New Testament, again, it's the same thing. The Greek word is translated into either wife or woman based on the context of the passage. Joseph took Mary as his gune, his wife, 
And Jesus warns men not to look at gune, a woman, with lust. It's the same Greek word, different context. And so we get a different English translation. My point is here that whether you are a young, unmarried woman or a not-so-young married woman, this sermon is for you. As I said last week, who we are and who God made us to be is inseparably linked to how we are to live. In our Sunday School Catechism, we ask the question, how and why did God create us? And we answer, God created us male and female in his own image to glorify him. And so we know our purpose, to glorify our maker, whom we represent on earth. Women represent God on earth, but in a substantially different way than men. Redeemed womanhood looks very different than redeemed manhood. That should be quite obvious. And yet the world is very confused about who women are. It is becoming increasingly difficult for people to answer what is a woman. Is it someone's looks? Is it an attitude? Is it the ability to have a child that makes someone a woman? Well, thankfully, God is not confused about what a woman is and why they were created, and so we needn't be either. So let's start at the beginning with Eve, the first woman. At the time of her arrival, Adam was God's sole image bearer on earth, having been given responsibility to work and keep the garden, naming the animals and so on. And then in Genesis 2, verse 18, God says, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Notice this is the first not good that we see in the creation account. God separates the dry earth from the water. He calls it good. He makes trees and plants and fruit. And that again is good. Sun, moon, and stars, good. Animals, good. God creates man in his own image, very good. But man alone is not good. So God puts Adam to sleep and he performs a supernatural surgery. He takes one of Adam's ribs and he closes him back up and he makes a woman out of that rib. When Adam comes out of sedation, he is met with something he's never seen before. Rather, for the first time, he's met with someone. Someone like him, yet clearly not. Being the romantic that Adam is, he writes a poem which is recorded for us in verse 23. He says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam was captivated by what he saw in front of him. Eve hadn't even done anything yet, other than exist by God's hand, but Adam knew that this was going to change everything. God then officiates the first marriage, the original one flesh union between Adam and Eve, and he sets the divine pattern for all of us who descended from our first parents. And so using the creation account in Genesis and bringing in some other passages as well, let's consider today four points in regards to biblical womanhood. And let me just say, this is one of the reasons why the book of Genesis needs to be regarded as literal, and it needs to be regarded as authoritative. The first book of the Bible is foundational to understanding God's redemptive purposes and many, many principles taught throughout the scriptures. So point number one, women as equals. In the beginning, God created mankind. That is, he created people according to his image. Male and female, he created them. Both are given the imago Dei, the image of God. There's no distinction in that regard. Both women and men are created in God's likeness. Both are equal in terms of dignity and in terms of value. 
The idea that God somehow values women less than men is a concept foreign to Scripture. Women are granted great honor by God, and we'll get to some of that later. But clearly, as we read the narratives found in Scripture, the history told throughout Scripture, we can see that women have not always been treated as equals by men. Almost from the very beginning, after the fall, women began to suffer at the hands of sinful men. Polygamy, adultery, unlawful divorce, abusive male headship are all contrary to God's intention for women. So these abuses, though present in Scripture and common in the world, are in no way endorsed by God. God is the protector of the weak. He is the defender of the oppressed. God is grieved and angered at the mistreatment of women by men, be it emotionally, physically, or sexually. Men are commanded to love, honor, and protect women. And of course, this sin is a result of the fall, which brought with it many consequences, which we can read about in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve's original sin brought a curse on all mankind and all of creation. Instead of the world being an eternal garden paradise, there would be death and destruction and confusion, confusion upon the entire earth. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, would be removed from the Garden of Eden, removed from the direct fellowship with God that they had previously enjoyed. The curse for Adam, who failed to lead and protect his wife from the serpent, would mean that his work would now be difficult. There would be thorns and thistles and sweat. His life would be filled with pain and struggle and sorrow, and eventually he would die. Eve, who had failed to come under her husband's headship, was deceived by the serpent and then led Adam astray. For her, the curse would result in great pain in childbirth and a disordered desire to rule over her husband. She would want to lead the one she was to be led by. This curse extends to all of us born in Adam, and its results continue even until now. Sin and confusion and shame and abuse are still rampant in our world today. And regrettably, feminism has grabbed hold of this oppression and abuse and uses it to preach the mass overthrow of male leadership in the home and in the world and in, even in the church. Feminism says, women, you don't need men. You don't answer to men. You are as strong or stronger. You are as capable of providing, protecting, and leading as men. Women are encouraged to do for themselves, to live for themselves. They are told that promiscuity is liberating and abortion is just health care. Feminism teaches women to, to ignore their God-given design and purpose. And over the last few decades, feminism has become the prevailing thought in the media in our schools and sadly even in more and more churches, albeit perhaps in more subtle ways. Advocates of so-called Christian feminism would cite Galatians 3.28 as their proof text, which says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. They would use this text to downplay gender distinctions in the home and specifically in the church. The problem is, the context of this passage is not about gender roles in the church. That topic is dealt with clearly and definitively elsewhere in Scripture. Paul is not saying here that race, class, and gender have been completely eliminated in the household of God. There are still different colors and cultures. There are still different employers and employees. There are still two genders, male and female. What Paul is saying is that, redemptively speaking, we are equals 
We all were once held captive by the law, now we all are justified by faith. We are all in Christ, accepted by God. We are all our Father's adopted children. And so, women of grace, you are our sisters in the Lord, made in the image of God. You are equal and fellow heirs in the grace of life. Point number two, women as companions. Now, when Adam first saw Eve in all of her feminine glory, we don't suppose the first thought that crossed his mind was, now I can get my work done more efficiently, or even now I'll be able to have a bunch of children. I suggest to you that Adam was captivated. He was attracted. He was impassioned. Most men don't write poetry at all, and I don't imagine any do it without first being enamored or infatuated with something or someone. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Adam literally woke up and found a wife. Eve was different than anything Adam had ever seen before. With her, he would be able to have companionship and closeness. He would experience a unique intimacy and a oneness that he had never experienced up to this point. Women are complementary to men. Not complementary to us in that they're always saying nice things about us, but complementary. They are our counterpart. They are our other half. In a sense, women complete men. Not that men are lacking in and of themselves, but that the presence of men alone cannot adequately picture God. Women were created that God would be more fully imaged in the world. We have to be careful here. God never describes himself as a female. God is spirit. He is without a human body. And in that sense, he is without a biological gender. Again, this is a little hard for us to wrap our finite heads around. It's kind of like the Trinity or God having eternally existed. Uh, There's nothing in our human experience that can accurately picture or represent these divine attributes. But even though God always refers to himself himself, he self-describes as a male, there are characteristics of God and actions of God that he has revealed to us in distinctly feminine imagery. And I'll touch on some of these passages later on, but for now let me propose a few ways in which women image God in ways that men do not or do not do as well. First of all, consider God's beauty, both in his own being and in his creation. God himself is said to be beautiful. Psalm 27, David desires to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. In Psalm 50, it says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. God is beautiful. He is wondrous to behold. And certainly in the created world, there are things that we would consider beautiful. Things that seem to be more for aesthetic purposes than for function, even though both are present. Consider tropical birds and fish the blue sky and the green grass, the lilies of the field which Jesus said surpass even King Solomon in splendor, gemstones of every color, twinkling stars that exist solely to glorify God and display his beauty. The world is colorful. It is interesting. It is captivating. And I would suggest to you that that quality is largely feminine. I don't know about most of the men here, but I could exist perfectly well with a concrete yard, plain walls, and an undecorated house. It would be totally functional and very low maintenance. 
But introduce a woman into the, to the environment, and immediately things get more attractive. They get more charming and more beautiful. All of a sudden, there's flowers in front of the house, and there's pictures on the walls, and there's candles and little meaningful items all over the place. A woman makes a house into a home. Women's presence in the world has the same effect. We find women interesting and, and attractive. They are like us as men. They are like us, but they're not like us. Women are intrinsically softer than men. Their voices are higher and gentler. They're more delicate and they're more sensitive in a good way, more compassionate, more nurturing. Dads, our sons come to us to roughhouse and to play, but they usually go to their mothers with their bumps and bruises. We all recognize those realities. Naturally speaking, women are often better listeners, better communicators, and better relationally. Baby girls almost always say first words earlier than their male counterparts. Boys like to play war, girls like to play house. I speak generally here. And if you listen in on a group of men working together, often you won't hear much other than the sound of tools, maybe the odd grunt or a joke made towards each other's expense. If you listen in on women working, you'll often hear meaningful conversations about life, about marriage or children or other relationships, about feelings and emotions. So I would suggest to you that God's tenderness, his compassion, even his relational nature within the Trinity and within his creation, with his creation, is better represented by women than men. We as men benefit, and the whole world benefits greatly simply by the presence of women in it. So I say to you, women of grace, your beauty, your compassion, your relational nature uniquely images God and it exists to glorify him. Point number three, women as helpers. So the, the feminine qualities that I mentioned previously, they are inherent. They are natural to all women in varying degrees. To a certain extent, women as a created gender already image and glorify God just by being in existence. But I want to spend some time now considering how is it that these qualities are to be used for God's glory and the building of his kingdom? How is it that your beauty can be redeemed or your compassion or your desire to be relational? Well, you must begin by seeing yourself as God created you to be, a helper. Now, the world supposes, as do some Christians, that someone with the role of helper or supporter is somehow less important than the one being supported. But in the household of God, we are all servants, albeit with different roles. Men and women, husbands and wives, have different responsibilities within the home and within the church. In the home, husbands are given the difficult calling of headship, and wives are given the difficult calling of submission. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, also, so, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now you might say, perhaps, you know, maybe your husband is an unbeliever, or maybe they haven't been a believer for as long as you have. Maybe they haven't matured as much as you would have hoped for. Scripture addresses that situation as well. If you turn to 1 Peter 3, Verses 1 to 2. 
Peter is here writing on the topic of authority in various spheres. He has discussed the authority of the state, uh, authority between masters and slaves, and now in chapter 3 he's going to address authority in marriage. So this is verse 1 and 2. He writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Wives, according to the word of God, your behavior and conduct towards your husband is more powerful than what you say. Ultimately, your husband answers to God himself for his behavior. It is his prayers that will be hindered if they neglect or mistreat you. It is he who is failing to image Christ faithfully if they abdicate their duty to love, honor, and protect you. Now, within godly submission, there is still room for respectful discussion with your husband. Humbly bring your concerns before him, and then leave it in God's hands. Pray for your husband, but do not think you can sanctify him. That burden is not yours. That job belongs to the Holy Spirit, a different helper. Well, that said, there may be times or situations of extreme neglect or abuse where the elders of the church or authorities need to be contacted. If that's the case, pray for wisdom, seek counsel, and proceed as necessary. Just remember, the sanctification of your husband is God's responsibility. So be faithful, be respectful, and leave it to God. Now, the submission of women extends to the church as well. Scripture is clear that positions of leadership in the church, elders and deacons, are to be held by men, qualified men, mature in the faith, sound in doctrine, who live respectable, faithful, exemplary lives. Women, the Apostle Paul says, are to learn quietly with all submissiveness. They are not to teach or have authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This is from 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 to 12, if you want to turn there, which Paul then grounds in Genesis 3, where Eve was deceived and then led Adam astray. We can read a similar passage in 1 Corinthians 14. I'm just trying to demonstrate to you that these are not my ideas, but scriptures, truths. In 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, where women are instructed to keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. And in that case, the law is referring back to God's created order with Adam as head. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians there that if there is anything wives desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now this is not referring to fellowship prior to the service or potluck afterwards. This is referring to positions of leadership and teaching activities during the church service and specifically where that teaching would be towards a male audience. There are plenty of passages that commend women for teaching the scriptures. Fathers and mothers are supposed to raise their children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Paul's protege, Timothy, is said to have been taught the faith by his mother and grandmother. In the book of Acts, chapter 18, there's a situation where Apollos, who was a recent uh, Jewish convert, he was proclaiming the gospel, he was preaching, and I guess Priscilla and her husband, Aquila heard him, so they took him aside and they explained the way of God more accurately to him. They corrected his doctrine, and they presumably did this in a private setting. 
But within the church, women's main teaching opportunity and responsibility is given to the older women. If you would turn with me to Titus 2, Titus 2, verses 3 to 5. And here Paul has just described the responsibilities of older men in the church. They are to be sober-minded, respectable, self-controlled, and steadfast. And then he gets to verse 3, and uh, he says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So in the mission of God, there is a great responsibility and need for older women to mentor and generationally raise up more godly women. First of all, in their own households, with their own daughters and granddaughters. And secondly, in the church, with her younger sisters in the Lord. Mature women, you are setting an example for those younger than you. The way you speak and act can model godly behavior for the young ladies among us. Show them what it means to fear the Lord. Show them what it looks like to pursue holiness and a quiet spirit. Teach and train the young unmarried women of grace to love their future husbands by keeping themselves pure. Teach younger married women to honor their husbands and speak about them respectfully. Train them to build their house instead of tearing it down. Notice that this teaching, again, directs women's attentions to their households, to keeping the home, to caring for their husbands and children. This is not to say that women cannot work outside the home, but that their primary focus should be their households. Proverbs 31 has much to say about women being productive, about working. I'm not going to exegete the the whole chapter, but the writer describes an excellent wife as one who works hard, gathers goods for her family, provides food, makes significant purchases, is financially shrewd, buys and sells, decorates the home, decorates herself, prepares for hard times, and provides for the needy. She pours her life, her heart, primarily into her household. Godly, spirit-filled women desire to keep this command. They find fulfillment in it. And so, husbands, we need to facilitate that. Provide for your family adequately so that your wife can give as much of herself as possible to her household, to you and to her children. This is in your best interest and to your children's best interest. Don't pressure her into going against her calling and convictions. Don't set your lives up in such a way that your budget needs full-time income from her in order to be met. Women, be keepers of the home. Learn to be homemaking experts. You might not buy land or sell commodities, but serve your families with your garage sale purchases. Buy and prepare delicious food. And as I smell potluck here, I thank you again for doing that. Be devoted to your children and to your husband. Pursue godly submission and self-control. Let it come out in the way you speak, with wisdom and kindness. Let it come out in your service, with patience and diligence. Let it come out in your appearance, with discretion and modesty. As we read in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, 
but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Your appearance should match your profession, that being your profession of Christ. Women dress in a way that does not distract men, nor detract from your good works. Wives, there may be a time for, and a place for extravagant clothing and hairdos, but it is not in church. And I will say, wives, there is a time and a place for alluring and revealing clothing, but it is not in public. Again, just like last week with men's clothing and hair, I'm not going to stand here and give you rules for skirt length or skin coverage. But what I will say, say is this. Wives, honor your husbands with the way you dress. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that the husband's body belongs to the wife and the wife's belongs to the husband. If you're unclear on whether or not your clothing is appropriate, ask your husband. Men, be honest with your wives about what draws undue attention. Consider what clothing, when worn by other women, tempts you to lust or to look twice. And then help the women in your home to honor God and their Christian brothers with their clothing choices. Mothers, this is a conversation you will need to have with your daughters, probably an ongoing conversation. Teach your daughters to carry themselves with dignity, with propriety, and with modesty. Train them to adorn themselves, first and foremost, with reverence for God and the hidden person of the heart. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he calls this the imperishable beauty of a quiet, sorry, of a gentle and quiet spirit. Precious in the sight of God, more precious than jewels. In doing so, you will be building your home and blessing future homes by training the next generation of reverent, kind, and modest women of grace. And that brings me to my final point for today, women as mothers. Women as mothers. God's creation mandate, his original command to Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, was going to be a bit difficult without a female counterpart. It was Eve who would be honored by God by physically being able to bear, feed, and nurture children. Eve would be the mother of all creation. All future descendants would come from her. So Eve, and by extension, all women are honored by God in their ability to have children. A woman's womb is God's own workshop where he knits together and forms image bearers. Women are uniquely gifted to protect and nurture and nourish those who cannot care for themselves. Motherhood is a high and holy calling, but one that receives little encouragement from the world. Our culture has systematized child-rearing into a series of institutions with delegated supervision, daycare and kindergarten and extracurricular activities. And in modern church culture, there's Sunday school and youth groups and various clubs that we can sort of farm out the raising of our children for us. It's as though we have forgotten that it's the mother who has been divinely designed and equipped to raise her own children. It's no surprise then, when after a few generations of part-time motherhood, society hardly resembles what it did only 100 years ago, when it was the norm for married couples to have five, seven, or 10 children, when wives were primarily concerned with the well-being of their home and families, when parents bore the responsibility for the development and maturity of their children rather than putting it off on the church or state. These days, a successful household is considered to be two working parents, a three-car garage, but only one or maybe two children. We've gone from multiplying and filling the earth 
to actually depleting it. Again, from the world's standpoint, motherhood has little to offer. Mothers trade in their beauty sleep for 4 a.m. feedings, their youthful figures for stretch marks. They give up their free time to be on call 24-7 and often for the least glamorous of tasks. Men, if you think about it, having a baby is bringing a tenant into your own body and one who would not get their damage deposit back. And yet, this is the way that God has chosen to fill the earth with his image. Motherhood is part of the mission of God. Motherhood itself images God. As I said earlier, there are times in the scriptures where God relates to us in feminine terms, like, like a mother. For example, in Isaiah 66, verse 13, God says, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. In Hosea 13, God says he will defend his children and avenge them like a mother bear robbed of her cubs. He will tear open their enemies. You may have witnessed this type of maternal instinct at a kid's sporting event. And our Lord Jesus in Luke 13 said he desired to gather Jerusalem's wayward children like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Motherhood models God. It models his comforting compassion. It models his fierce protection. It models his desire and commitment to see his church built, his elect gathered in from every corner of the globe. But the mission of motherhood is difficult. It's one in which the harvest can seem sparse and late in season. Beyond the, chain, beyond the pain of childbirth, mothers ache and hurt for their children in ways that men struggle to relate to. Women are nurturers, caregivers by nature. But when their child is suffering, the mother is suffering as well. And when you add the spiritual element into the equation, mothers can feel unbearably burdened to bring about spiritual growth and development and maturity in their children. Especially because in most cases, it's the mother who spends the most time with her children. She's the first one, and the one who sees it the most, their children's depravity, their rebellion, and their hatred towards God, and sometimes towards herself. And yet we are commanded to teach and train our children in the way they should go, that they may not depart from it. To teach them God's commandments diligently, when we sit in the house or go for a walk in the park, or at the breakfast table or at bedtime. To raise them up to fear and obey God, yet in an environment of grace, leaving the results to the Lord and trusting in his faithfulness, not our own. So motherhood is a great calling, one that grants believing women the opportunity to directly influence the next generation of image bearers, to disciple them as Christ's and not the world's. Motherhood, childbearing is still difficult, and yet in Christ, it has been redeemed. In John 16, Jesus, shortly before he would be delivered up to Pilate, comforted his disciples with these words. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In 1 Timothy 2 verse 15, Paul tells us that women who continue 
who persevere in faith and in love and in holiness with self-control will be saved through childbearing. Now this is a challenging verse to interpret. We don't understand it to mean that somehow having a child will make you right with God. I will offer you two sort of streams of thought and then we'll close for today. First of all, women of grace, trust God. Trust him through your pain. The pain of difficult singleness, the pain of broken relationships or damaged marriages, the pain of emotional neglect and the scars of abuse of various kinds, the pain of childlessness and the pain of child rearing. Trust God enough to honor and submit to your imperfect husband. Trust him enough to disciple your children even when they resent you for it at times. Trust God that you may persevere in faith, in love, and in holiness, not by your own power, but by his preserving grace. Because you are under grace, you can become a woman of grace. And my second thought from Paul's text, my second point is that childbearing is the way that God saved the world. All of us who will ever be saved will be saved through childbearing. In the garden, when God's curse fell on Adam and Eve, it fell on the serpent as well. Satan, the great deceiver, was cursed to eat dust as a snake and to be at war with humankind. God then promised Eve that she would go on to have an offspring who would deal the fatal blow to Satan. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, When the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law. Eve's distant descendant, Mary, would have God's, God's incarnate son in her womb and give birth to the head crusher, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who would live a perfect life and die a criminal's death on the cross to take God's wrath for our sin upon himself, to grant us his righteousness, that his wayward children might be a part of his household in a restored relationship with God, to destroy Satan, sin, and death once for all, for all those who repent and call upon his name. This is how childbearing has been redeemed, how motherhood has been redeemed. Women of grace, your womanhood has been redeemed by Christ. Serve him with it, with everything you have and everything you are, to the glory of his name and the building of his kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for equipping us by it that we would be prepared for every good work. Lord, your word shows us the dignity, the honor, and the wisdom, and the beauty, and the grace of redeemed womanhood. Thank you that in Christ that we can glorify you and serve you as you've designed us with our entire beings, our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. Lord, we thank you especially for the women in our midst, how they are faithful to serve you in so many ways, how they bless their husbands, their children, and the church. Lord, grant them sufficient grace for every trial as you have promised to do, that they would be the women of grace that you've called them to be, that their husbands would praise them, that their children would rise up and call them blessed, that through their faith, love, holiness, and self-control, you would honor them and that you would be honored. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.